Hello everybody and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we explain how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects like pomegranates, rocks and skunks. That's a really good one. (laughs) Love the idea of skunks. We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of carrots is in fact all about the home front during World War Two, or that the history of eyes is in fact all about surveillance in Tudor England. And the man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in lockdown, he will help pilot us through these micro-histories. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, but ably helping me co-pilot these episodes, is the famous historical adventure himself, Dr. Sam Willis. <laughs> Stan? It sounded like Stan Willis. Dr. Stan Willis. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, this is one of our wonderful micro-histories in which we embrace the task of demonstrating how an unexpected subject not only has a history, but is massively important and interesting. We do it all in just 15 minutes without just talking faster. What we do is we start with a shared example and then have just five minutes each to make a case for an interesting history on that very unexpected subject. Contribute are rigorously timed. They certainly are. We will be rigorously timing them. And you, you, our dear listeners, you will get to vote on social media on what you think was the most interesting fact you heard in the episode. Today, uh, it's the fabulously entertaining history of the face. James, where are we going to begin with The Face? The Face. Well, Sam, we were inspired to do this episode by our book on the Tudors. So let's start there. And in particular, with portraits of faces through which source we know what the Tudors looked like. Now, a surprising variety of people exist in Tudor portraiture. As you might expect, portraits survive of the wealthy, of monarchs, of noblemen, noble women and their children. And in particular, we have a very good idea of what all the Tudor monarchs looked like. Just think of the halls and galleries full of Tudor royal paintings of Portraits of Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I and Elizabeth I. These confirm what they looked like. And the finest are by painters like Hans Holbein, Marcus Geertz, the younger Nicholas Hilliard and Isaac Oliver, among others. There are, however, some very significant absentees from the immediate Tudor family, not least of which is Anne Boleyn. A handful of images might be of Anne, But none of them are contemporary and none of them look the same. The best idea we have comes from the description Francesco Sanuto, the Venetian diplomat, gave of her. And this was not entirely flattering. To his eyes, she was not one of the handsomest women in the world. She is of middling stature, swarthy complexion, long neck, wide mouth, a bosom not much raised and eyes which are black and beautiful while a more hostile account of her appearance at her coronation in 1533 deemed that a wart disfigured her very much. (laughs) Did Cromwell have a wart or was it a mole? 
not sure. Well, are you talking Oliver Cromwell? Oliver Cromwell, yeah, yeah. Great big yeah. wart, I imagine. Very big wart. Anyway, um, so back to the Tudors. <laughs> We're a little 17th century uh, wander off there. Um, it's important to realise is we've been talking about some kings and queens, but it's not it's not just uh, royalty. There's a remarkable cross-section of faces. We basically know what Tudors look like, more or less. And a lot of these portraits were for private consumption rather than for public display, rather very different to this kind of formal portrait of monarchy. And these private ones, some are very big, get to be hung up on a wall, but others are tiny. And these wonderful little survivals, they, they would have been, they would have existed in, in lockets to wear around your neck or private boxes or chests, very private, intimate uh, appreciation and maybe remembrance of what someone looked like, Um, the ability to sit there and and to, to look at someone's face. And these portraits include paintings of civic leaders, merchants, lawyers, clergy, actors, writers, scholars and artisans um, like embroiderers and goldsmiths. So there's a huge variety of of, um, of people there. We even have a handful of images of the poor, the marginalised and the disabled, those with learning difficulties. Notable examples um, come the, the, the comic or rustic characters um, are of Will Summers, Henry VIII's fool, and his comic appearance appears in, in several contemporary portraits, as well as Jane the fool, who joined Princess Mary's household um, and on one occasion had her head shaved, which is a mark of the fool. There are also portraits of pregnant women. There are portraits of the elderly, so we get a sense of ageing. But also what I think is absolutely fascinating is that portrait painters could use their skills to disguise reality, as it were. And so historians must learn not to be duped by certain Tudor faces. Think, for example, of the ageing Elizabeth I, who was painted in all her glittering beauty in the formal portraits of her declining years, but they contrast powerfully with descriptions of the Queen at the time. In the Armada portrait of 1588, she's painted with clear, firm skin and lustrous hair, and then again, four years later, she's painted positively aglow in the Ditchley portrait, which is dated to circa 1592, but the French ambassador rather cattily, reported in a dispatch of 1595. As for her face, it is and appears to be very aged. It is long and thin, and her teeth are very yellow and unequal, compared with what they were formerly, so they say, and on the left side less than on the right. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot easily understand her when she speaks quickly. And the German visitor Paul Hentzner in 1598 described the Queen as majestic, yet her face was oblong, fair, but wrinkled, her eyes small yet black and pleasant, her nose a little crooked, her lips narrow, and her teeth black. She wore false hair, and her bosom was uncovered. So there we have it, Sam. The face in 16th century Britain is all about what the Tudors actually looked like. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it, that we actually we, we know that. Um, I always, on, on the hunt for, well, very excited when new portraits are discovered. I think they're fantastic. And then you get a, a, another image is survived, uh, survives from the past. Um, so there we are. That's one example of the history of the face. That's what inspired us to do this episode. But where else can we go with the history of the face, James? I've got a very good example. I'm going to start. Go on, you go. You go ahead. And okay, count I me down. Will, 
I will minutes. time you. I will time you. I'm going to have you on your timer here. But should there be points if you go under your five minutes? <laughs> Maybe, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, on your marks, get set, do history. <laughs> um, I, I've, I was thinking about this, and I love the idea of faces being fascinating for historians and particularly intriguing for the public as well as a way of getting close to history, getting inspired to study different aspects of history. So certainly they can be used by historians to solve problems, to understand perhaps the ageing process or perceptions of beauty. But they also more broadly generate interest. I've recently, um, someone got in touch with me and they've been using um, artificial intelligence now to upload an, an image of a death mask of Nelson was the example they did. I, I also did one of Cromwell. And um, the computer does very clever stuff and then reproduces the face from the image of the death mask. Death mask. It's incredibly clever and something I want to do more of. But it made me think of uh, faces that actually survive from the past. So I was recently in Berlin and I went to the amazing Egyptian Museum of Berlin, the news museum on Berlin's Museum Island, and I saw the bust of Nefertiti, um, which I'm going to be talking about. But before I do that, I'm going to read a little bit here from a historian writing in 1931. I think it captures beautifully the way uh, that the face is so important. One of the most interesting features of modern historical work is the attempt of the historian not only to construct a complete and reliable skeleton of fact about particular peoples and periods, but also, when that has been done, to clothe the dry bones with flesh and blood and to inspire them with life and movement. The dry catalogues of events and dynasties which served as histories in the past no longer satisfy us. We wish to know how people lived, acted, thought in ancient days, to see them as they wrought their day's work, to follow them into the intimacies of their homes, to know what they believed in and hoped for, even what amused them in their hours of relaxation. Perhaps even more keenly do we desire to realise individual personality where such a thing is possible, and to be able to form in our own mind an actual conception of the men who made history in the past. I think he's pretty much obviously um, leaving out the women who made history in the past and also the children. But it's a fabulous quote and I think it really encapsulates why we are so attracted by faces. If you want to think about a face from the past, look no further than the the bust of Nefertiti um, in the News Museum in Berlin. It's amazing, a beautiful long neck, a distinctive hat or cap, almost like a crown, beautiful eyes. Uh, it's, it's better than anything out of Madame Tussauds. It's distinctively artistic. It's a wonderful mix between art and realism. It's quite large. It's about um, a half a metre, 19 inches or so tall. It's quite heavy, about 20 kilograms. It's made of limestone cork covered with painted stucco layers. It's very smooth, the um, plasterwork on the face. And you're basically standing there looking at the face of an Egyptian. It's incredibly powerful. Um, little is actually known about the lady that uh, is being depicted here. Perhaps she was an Egyptian of royal birth, a foreign princess, perhaps even the daughter of a high government official. We do know when it was made. It was made about 1345 BC. We know who made it, the sculptor Thutmose. Um, in fact, we, we, the archaeologists discovered his workshop when they were excavating um, a really important Egyptian site now known as Amarna. If you want to go to an Egyptian archaeological site when lockdown is over, go to Amarna. It's completely mind-blowing. They found a ruined house there and it was Thutmose's um, 
workshop. It's amazing. They didn't just find this head. They found loads of heads, loads of different faces. In fact, 22 plaster casts of faces were found in his studio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Um, they've been identified as other members of the royal family, um, including Arkenaten, who was the pharaoh at the time, uh, his wife Kia, his late father, Amenhotep III, his eventual successor, who was known as I. But really interestingly, a bit like we're talking about with the Tudors, there are depictions of older Egyptians, Egyptians with wrinkles at the corner of their eyes, bags under their eyes, deeply lined foreheads. Um, and I think that's fascinating. So it's not just this idealised depiction often portrayed for women, like you have with Nefertiti's bust, uh, everyone being young, slender and incredibly beautiful. The Egyptians also, in their art, created depictions of older people. In fact... oh. What is that noise, James? Well, that that town crier, that oh yay, was the Southwold town crier John Barber, uh, who three years ago stepped down after 40 years of service Mm. as town crier. Oh, an important, well-known face from the past, James, I think you'd say, the town criers. It's a very, very, so. very good choice, remarkably similar to mine. Let, allow me to finish, because I was deep in Egypt there, um, and I was talking about the Egyptians, that they, they have um, just uh, beautiful images, like Nefertiti bust, but also uh, uh, different images that stylize youth and beauty so much, uh, images of the old. Absolutely fascinating, an extraordinary variety of images. Uh, I did want to point out that Hitler, in fact, uh, was obsessed with Nefertiti's bust and he he said almost that he he, in so many words that he loved her Um, and he held up Nefertiti as an example of um, sort of perfect Aryan beauty and it was by no means the only example of the Nazis appropriating material from other cultures. Uh, So there's a political point you you can make here about faces and what they can be, how they can be used for political ends. So there you are, James. Faces for me are all about German archaeologists discovering um, extraordinary Egyptian remains and the varying attitudes of respect for the dead in prehistory, the need to kind of recreate images of those who are living and also those who have died in prehistory. Thank you very much. X, very good, very good. <laughs> well, I have something sort of similar-ish, um, mm. uh, but but not not face masks in that sense, uh, but face masks, face coverings is what I'm going to talk about. Ah, I was actually going to talk about extended a bit further, and there is an entire history of facial reconstruction. It's fascinating. So the mm. way that everyone did it in the Middle Ages, how that changed to the 19th century, um, it was used to to. Um, uh, help with criminal investigations. And we could do a, another entire episode on all of that. James, are you ready to make history? I'm ready to make history, Sam. In, in three, two, one, begin, go. 
OK, well, when I was casting around thinking about this, I thought the the history of face masks covering for the face, their evolution over time, their significance and cultural meaning. I thought since we're in the third uh, lockdown uh, in the United Kingdom at the moment, I thought this was very timely uh, and relevant. We're all so used to wearing face masks now. They're probably one of the most highly recognised visual features of the global pandemic during this Covid crisis. Medically, they are they seem to be essential, uh, although there's some debate about how truly effective different kinds are, whether you use visors, whether you use cloth masks, whether you use medical grade masks, whether micro particles go through. They are style symbols as well. I, I myself wear a bandana uh, with a medical mask underneath. So I wear two, two layers. So I have to be I have to be safe, but also I have to look good. They all have also become a political weapon. So people on the left and right arguing that it is an infringement of their individual rights to wear a face mask. Now, get this. Uh, this is a tale from deepest, darkest um, uh, Thames Valley uh, from my mother, who alerted me of a tale uh, from her local butchers in Pangbourne just before Christmas. She told me that three men jumped out of a Rolls Royce car and jumped the queue in a very busy butcher's and asked for pies, um, and in fact uh, refused to wear face masks. And the, the the entire shop was in uproar about this, and the butcher and his son are now in hospital. So we have uh, living history from the backwaters of the Thames Valley there. But love them and loathe them, the face mask is probably one of the most purchased items throughout 2020 and sales have simply soared but they are not a new or novel phenomenon face coverings have been around for centuries they have ancient origins uh, and in fact the earliest recorded face mask like objects in history date to 6th century BC and there survive several images of people depicted wearing cloths over their mouths, on the doors of Persian tombs. So we can trace the practices back to the East. They were also found in the 13th and 14th century in China, around the time of the Yuan Dynasty, which is 1279 to 1368, where there are records of a kind of silk-woven scarf being uh, worn over the face in a similar way to today's face masks. And we know this from reading the travels of Marco Polo, the famous uh, 13th century travelogue of the um, Italian traveller uh, who travelled uh, in China around this period and recorded servants who served the emperor during meals being asked to wear silk scarves to cover their mouths and noses. And I quote... The numerous persons who attend at the sideboard of his majesty and who serve him with victuals and drink are all obliged to cover their noses and mouths with handsome veils or cloths of worked silk in order that his victuals or his wine may not be affected by their breath. So it's the idea that it's a barrier for you know, foul-smelling odours. If you leap ahead into the 14th century, we think about the spread of the Black Death around Europe. We have rather odd and very functional face mask-like objects 
Um, we have the invention in the 16th century of the beak mask. Uh, and the inventor, a French doctor called Charles de Lorme, or Charles de Lorme, uh, installed a glass eye in the sockets to ensure that people could see out of it, that perfume and scented spices or medicine and camphor, mint leaves, all sort of scented things like that would be placed in the beak to filter out the disease. And this mask was topped off with a hat, shawl, robe, glasses and gloves even, shoes, walking stick, in fact, to make up a complete assemblage or beak suit. Uh, this would have been utterly terrifying uh, to sort of to sort of see as a sort of you know as a an example of the of of the plague it we can also um think about inventions uh, by people like leonardo da vinci uh who play who invents a, an early face mask with a filter to filter out toxic chemicals um we also see in um 17th century uh china um <laughs> <laughs> this James is another town crier. I'm really enjoying it. Do you Im imagine an elderly grey white man with a crumpled face and a silly hat shouting? That's basically what town criers are. And there's a cracking example for you. I've interrupted you in your speech. You were doing very well. You may finish off your sentence. You do. And I had far too much about uh, about uh, people uh, jumping out of Rolls Royces at the beginning. I didn't pace myself with this. In other words, the point I was trying to make is that there is a whole history of this, and I didn't have time to talk about the invention uh, during the 19th century of the sort of more modern face masks, gas masks, the uber-brilliant uh, medical masks that we have today that filter out even those microparticles. So there we have it, Sam. The history of faces is all about the development of technologies to cover the face, which is all about disease, pandemic and the politics of individualism and also oh. pies. <laughs> and pies. I like the phrase beak suit, which you used in your yes. talk. <laughs> we all need a beak suit at the moment. Well, don't we? Don't we just? We should do the history of beaks. Uh, so there we are, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. A little micro history on the history of the face um, that make you think about what you're doing with your face as you're going out covering it up nowadays. Uh, James, I do like the idea of you wearing two masks. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. Wonderful. Do please follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the pod is at Unexpected Pod. And do please check out everything we've got online at historiesoftheunexpected.com. If you are a child or you have children or you are a teacher or you know teachers, please check out our series of homeschooling episodes which we're doing for kids. They've got a little quiz in them. They've got a task. Uh, they're all linked with a curriculum. We've done 30 already and there's going to be another load coming. If you could help spread the word to get that out to people stuck at home not knowing what to do with their kids. Um, get them listening to some crazy history. That would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back soon with some more homeschooling and some more micro histories. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye. <laughs>